Chapter 10 of Secret History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Secret History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter 10 it was just as tony had said it would be the newspapers next day repeated his story very few clear details were given the articles with their spread-eagle headlines concerned themselves more for a wonder with effect than cause they told at length and dramatically how el paso had been aroused in the dead of night by bomb-like explosions which many had taken for granted came from the guns on the hill repelling or revenging a raid from the other side they told how the public had behaved and described the relief felt when it had been definitely learned on good authority that the alarm was due to an accident with some ammunition but about the accident itself there was what struck me as a singular reticence considering the wild conjectures newspapers did not hesitate to print on other subjects their piece de resistance was the magnificent courage and presence of mind displayed by major sidney van dyke of the artillery whose battery had been concerned in the incident i sent for all the el paso papers which were brought to me before i was up very early in the morning and i sat in bed studying in one after the other of them the version of last night's strange affair somehow the general praise of sidney van dyke's exploit annoyed me intensely as one is annoyed when an undeserving person is ignorantly lauded to the skies i know that on the face of things i had no right to say that he was undeserving in this case but that instinctive rebellion in me against tony's story last night cried out against it now there's something queer under it all i kept telling myself i must find out what it is and i must know about eagle concerning captain march the papers had very little to say they understood that he had been on the spot when the explosion had occurred and that he had received slight injuries which would prevent him from carrying on his military duties for some time to come all their attention was bestowed upon major van dyke who had made himself the hero of what was called el paso's big night owing to the indisposition of the colonel who had been struck down in the morning by a touch of the sun major van dyke was temporarily in command his private automobile which had followed him from alvarado to el paso had brought him from new fort bliss to old Fort Bliss on official business, and he was on his way back when hearing sounds which resembled gunfire, he had stopped his chauffeur on the instant and dashed on fast up the artillery hill, near which he happened to be. Fearing that the Mexicans already restless, owing to the attitude of the United States at Veracruz and other places, and to the arrival of reinforcements along the Rio Grande, might misunderstand and work some mad irreparable mischief. 
Major Van Dyke and his orderly had made a dash across the river, in spite of the white flag used to protect the car and its occupants. The sentinels on guard upon the Mexican side had fired at the sight of men in uniform, and the orderly had been shot. Otherwise, the errand so bravely undertaken had been crowned with success. The Mexicans, thinking they had been fired at, were about to discharge their own field guns, placed in a position of offense, in answer to the menace of the United States. Had Major Van Dyke been five minutes later, with his diplomatic intervention, the word would have been given to fire, and one or more of El Paso's finest buildings might have been destroyed, perhaps with loss of life. Terrible to think of even now, when the danger was past. The next thing I did, having absorbed all the news I could get from the papers, was to write a letter to Eagle. I told him that I heard he had been hurt, and begged him to send me a line, or a word if he couldn't write, to say how he really was. I inquired if he were in hospital, and if it would be possible for me to see him. When I had finished, I rang and asked for a trustworthy messenger. By and by, a servant of the hotel arrived to do my errand, and I told him as clearly as I could what I wanted. He must go to the big camp near Fort Bliss and inquire for Captain March. I couldn't say whether the officer would be in his own tent or elsewhere. But, anyhow, he must be found. If he were too ill to answer even by word of mouth, the messenger mustn't come back until at least he had learned something about Captain March's condition. I'll pay you very well, I said, trying to give the effect of a budding female millionaire. As soon as the man had gone, I bathed and dressed quickly in order to be ready if he brought back word that I might be allowed to see Eagle. I didn't care whether I had breakfast or not, but time dragged on and nothing happened. For the sake of making dull moments pass, I rang for coffee and a roll. It was early still, and Mrs. Dalziel and Milly were doubtless trying to make up for their disturbed night by taking an extra rest. The tray appeared and I ate and drank what the choking in my throat would let me swallow. But there was no sign yet of the messenger. I calculated how long it ought to take him to reach the camp on the bicycle he had mentioned. How long to do the errand? How long to return? And still there was nearly an hour unaccounted for. I was so restless and miserable that I could have shrieked I walked up and down the little white and green room, as if it were a cage. But soon all my strength had gone from me. I sat on the window seat, staring out, as I had stared in the night, hoping now to catch sight of a man on a bicycle. At last, when I had begun to feel shut in, and only half alive, like the Lady of Shalott, as though nothing could ever happen in my life again, I jumped up at the sound of a knock on the door. It was the messenger. My heart bounded when he took from his pocket a letter, but only to fall at seeing a hotel envelope with my own handwriting on it. 
I'm sorry, miss, the man said, but I couldn't get to Captain March. I went everywhere and tried asking a lot of folks, but couldn't find out nothing. They wouldn't let me into the camp, even much less to a gentleman's tent. So I can't tell you whether he's there or not. I did my best, but the army's different from civil life. When they say no, they mean no. And there ain't no going around it, or they prods you with one of them bayonets. Surely you haven't come back without any news, I cried. You must have heard something. Not a thing at the camp except what I've just told you, miss, the messenger persisted. I hung around, and whenever I seen some chap going in, if I could get him to speak, I asked questions till they began to take me for one of them newspaper guys. It was only when I seen the stunt was no good, I chucked it and come back with your letter. There's just one thing I did hear, but not in camp. It was outside the hotel. As I stopped my wheel, I met an old soldier from the fort I had been acquainted with a good long time. Fact is, he's engaged to my sister. I asked him if he'd heard about Captain March being wounded, and he said only, I don't know as I ought to tell you what he said. Tell me every word, I panted. Well then, if it's every word you want, miss, he said it was all damn nonsense about March being wounded, that something big was up, and he's under arrest. Under arrest? The words struck like bullets. Just for a second, everything swam before my eyes, and I was afraid that I was going to do the most idiotic thing a woman could do faint. You see, I had had no sleep and wasn't quite at my best, but I pulled myself together, and in my ears my voice sounded only a little sharp, and I asked the messenger if his soldier friend had given him any further information. Not he. Shut up tight as a clam, was the answer. I don't believe he knowed anything else. There was nothing more to be got from that quarter, so I paid the man and let him go. Then I tried to think how I could hope to probe to the bottom of the mystery, since mystery there certainly was. It seemed to me that since I wasn't able to reach Eagle by letter, my one chance lay in Tony. His manner and the admissions he had inadvertently dropped last night had told me that he had some knowledge of the truth, which was to be hidden from the public. He had refused to be pumped, and I respected him for his refusal. But I wasn't the public. Whatever the secret might be, I would keep it. All I wanted to do was to help Captain March, if he could be helped, for I was sure as through to my soul that if he had been arrested it was through some terrible mistake or cruel injustice. It was wicked of me, perhaps deliberately, to make a tool of poor Tony's love for me, but I tried to justify myself in deciding to do so by saying that no harm could come to him through it, or evil to anyone. I'll wheedle the truth out of Tony, 
I thought again. I dared not write and beg him to come and see me, for after our parting last night he would suspect what I wanted and have time to steel himself against me before we met. Nor could I go to the camp and try to find him there, for I, a young girl, wouldn't be admitted alone, even if I were desperate enough to think of attempting such a wild adventure. If I persuaded Mrs. Dalziel to take me, and we had the luck to see Tony, I shouldn't have a moment with him alone, whereas the process of wheedling might take many minutes. The only thing to do was to wait, and that was the hardest task ever given me. I shall not forget that day, even if I live to be an old woman, and looking back on it now over the months which have passed since, months which seem longer than all the rest of my life put together, I believe that my very character took on some change in those hours, as metal is changed if you throw it on the fire. I felt for the first time that I was a woman, with all the childishness burnt out of me, and I was glad, for I might have to do battle with those who are older and wiser than I. Mrs. Dalziel and Milly didn't appear till noon, but meanwhile I went down and talked to a great many people in the hotel, people whom I didn't know. After the excitement of the night, everybody chattered and exchanged impressions with everybody else, without stopping to think or care whether they had been introduced to each other. A few of the men had a vague idea that something was being hushed up, but none could guess what it was, and nobody knew anything about Captain March. Naturally, I didn't tell what I had been told, that he was under arrest. I trusted with all my heart that no one else had heard or would hear the story. And I prayed that it might not be true. To Milly, I would not speak of him at all. For though she had apologized for yesterday and made friends with me again, I knew that there was a cruel streak in her which would rejoice revengefully now in any trouble that fell on Eagle. She would feel that it was a direct punishment sent by fate for his indifference to her, and the way in which, for her own good, she had forced him to show it. We had been engaged for a short motor run with Tony in the afternoon, but I was more disappointed than surprised when he sent a hurried note to his mother saying that there was so much business to do he couldn't get off. He might not even be able to dine. We were not to wait, but he would turn up in time for dinner at 7.30 if he could. In any case, he would come in for a while later. I had an evening dress Di had given me after she had tired of it, which I had altered for myself, and Tony particularly liked it. I put it on for dinner that night. Tony did manage to come, bearing an offering, flowers for all three of us. I saw that he noticed the frock, and with a little meaning smile at him, I tucked one of his roses down into the neck. He flushed up at that, poor boy, all over his nice billikin face, and I felt like every cat in Christendom rolled into one. 
but it was the first move in my game. I hoped that after so much encouragement he would make some excuse after dinner to get me to himself. Scarcely a word was said during the meal concerning Captain March. Mrs. Dalziel inquired about him. Tony, with his mouth full, answered indistinctly and hurriedly that he was getting along all right, as well as anybody could expect, and Milly viperishly turned the subject to Major Van Dyke's exploit. He'll be a greater popular hero now than Captain March ever was, she remarked with an elaborately impersonal air. The first thing we know, Peggy, we shall hear that Lady Di is engaged to him. Don't you think? She adores heroes. She once told me so. What a romance that would be, beamed nice Mrs. Dalziel, who never saw under the surface of anything but I was grateful to her for breaking in and saving me the necessity of an answer to Milly's questions. If I had replied truthfully, I should have had to say that it was exactly what I did think. Whatever the secret of the night might turn out to be, I felt sure that Sidney Van Dyke had made a desperate bid to win Diana away from Eagle March. And with pangs of sharp remorse, I remembered those angry words of mine, which had perhaps spurred him to the effort. Neither Mrs. Dalziel nor Milly appeared to have any suspicions that the origin of the night alarm was not precisely what the newspapers reported. That simplified things for Tony, as far as they were concerned. And I was careful not to fling at him a single embarrassing question. As dinner went on, he lost the worried look he had brought with him, a look that was a misfit for his merry personality. He glanced often with a rather pathetic wistfulness at me, which I read very easily and shamefacedly, and at last he broke out with information concerning a torchlight procession that would set forth from one of the parks of El Paso. Of course, I knew what this remark was leading up to. He heard people say, he went on, that there was going to be quite a good impromptu show celebrating the end of the scare, for it was generally felt that Major Van Dyke's diplomatic dash had cleared the air of danger. And if there had been any real peril, it was past now, once and for all. Would we like to go out? and see the sight. Promptly, Millie answered for her mother and herself. They would not like to go out and see the sight. If there was anything worth the trouble of looking at, probably it could be seen from the hotel windows. But what about you, Lady Peggy? Tony asked. I'd love to go with you, I answered. I put on a long cloak, the one I had worn to see our battery off at Fort Alvarado Railway Station, and Tony and I sallied forth together. It was not till we were safely in the street that he told me we were early for the procession. Never mind, said I. It's lovely to be out in the blue night. We'll just stroll through quiet streets, where there won't be a crowd to bother us until it's time to go and gaze at the torches. There's a nice little sort of park, he suggested, not too far away. How would you like to walk there? 
I said I would like it. And as our little sort of park wasn't the park whence the procession would start, we had it practically to ourselves. We found an empty seat and sat down, side by side, like a Tommy Atkins and his girl in Kensington Gardens. The first thing that Tony did when we were anchored together there was to propose again, after an apology. I let him get it over, and then play the next pawn in my game. End of chapter 10 Recording by John Brandon